Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Welcome to a very special episode where we brought the founders of Aban, Remy and Ulrich, for a deep dive on the story behind the acquisition of Aban by Carter. You'll hear all about the founding story of Aban and how they continue hustling to create the infrastructure for European venture and what's to come. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Ulrich, Remy, super cool to have you here on the European VC. People that follow us on LinkedIn, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, might have noticed that we've been working a bit together. People that invest with us might have noticed that we use Vauban as well. So it's super cool to bring you guys. It's super cool to have this chat with you both. How are things? How are you guys? Awesome. I mean, we, we wanted to get on the pod for so long, so I'm glad we, we finally did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All you had to do was sell your company. Congrats, guys. <laughs> Guys, I hope this will be the big reveal episode because you are the entrepreneurs in our beloved VC space. You've been building a company that has mattered to a lot of us. So I think it is awesome to finally bring you on here for this show where we can kind of pull back the curtain a bit and talk about how did Boban actually come to be. And of course, also hear the story of the sale and, and how it all, all came to be. Take us through the love story that is Boban. I, I really love the story behind it. Yeah, I mean, I, I can touch on first on a, on a kind of background story on, you know, how we, we met with Remy because we've been launching, uh, you know, so many like uh, failed projects and, and startups <laughs> before. We met in freshman year at university, like in, a, in business school. We worked on a, like trading algorithm, you know, at first, like trying to, you know, an Etoro trading uh, like Forex exchange, FX stocks, etc. And then we are like, you know, seeing all what's happening on the tech side in startups. At the time, there was a French tech crunch. So we were like big fan of, you know, like reading all the article and we were like, okay, yeah, you need to do something. Like we need to launch a project or a startup. So our first idea and first project was called Save SMS. And it was essentially to back up your text messages. So it was before, you know, WhatsApp, like if you change phone, uh, you needed like a system, you know, to, to back up your, your SMS. So we launched that. And the idea then in terms of monetization was to be able to print your text messages in a book. And that was a huge success. <laughs> <laughs> And it's really because we developed like an algorithm to filter your love and sex messages. So you can, you know, only read <laughs> the real, you know, interesting conversation and then print a book about it. And it was a complete failure. Uh, but it was fun. You should have pivoted that to be like what a guy could use to check his girlfriend's phone, see if there's any other messages that include that kind of stuff. <laughs> Make it a super yeah. nasty spy app. That, that, that could have been a great pivot. <laughs> Next project was a fashion marketplace. And it's funny that we did that because we were really the least fashionable people at UV. <laughs> and so we didn't understand at all, you know, our like user target, etc. But, you know, we went on working on it for two years, uh, you know, developing a, an iPhone app. It was a lot of learnings, you know, like how to fix bugs, how to engage with the community. Um, it was kind of a Tinder for fashion. And then right before really starting thinking about Vauban, we wanted to launch a French bakery in London. <laughs> we drafted like a business plan. We were watching, you know, YouTube video on uh, how to make, you know, French croissant, etc. I'm glad we didn't do it because, you know, I'm not a morning person. So waking up at like <laughs> 4 a.m. to make a croissant, like it would have been a, a disaster. Um, I, I just need to stop you because you've got the three most French businesses in your track. You've got love, 
<laughs> you've got design and fashion, and then you've got croissants. I love it. <laughs> it's funny. I never, I never thought about that. It's true. It's quite something. Uh, sorry, Ollie. Yeah. Anyway, and then we're like, we thought, yeah, we knew software quite well, and we already knew passionate about like startups, etc. So we thought we could, uh, you know, raise a fund, invest our friends' money at university, and when we talked you know, to lawyers, accountants, etc., we realized it was, you know, almost impossible to do it. So we are like, you know, why not making this process easier? And uh, I will let Remy tell the rest of the story. Yeah, so we had the, that idea. So what we did is basically we did set up a landing page. And I think we also quite quickly realized that it's basically, I mean, you guys know that better than anyone, but it's a lot of people fantasy to start an investment firm, right? And if you look around the revenue in banking, investment management, you know, entrepreneurship, etc., real estate, you know, a lot of people's dream is actually to launch, you know, an investment business to use the expertise for that. There's no easy way to do it, right? You can launch an e-commerce business with your wife or husband in a few clicks on Shopify. But if you want to launch an investment management business, like, it's a proper nightmare. So we did set up a landing page. It was like, you know, launch your investment fund from a laptop. And the product market fit was instant. Like, it was actually pretty amazing. We were like, you know, a hole in the market, right? Like, we had such a strong product market thing and no competitor. That was pretty amazing. You know, later down the line, we actually understood that there were no competitor because it's brutally hard. But, you know, we couldn't know that at that time. So then, you know, we kind of resigned from our, you know, what we were doing at that time to launch kind of specifically on that. We got a first client. You know, the people that inquired on the website, they were very qualified. You know, we got a first client, a second, a third, etc. I raised a pre-seed round. And basically at that time, it was during the crypto boom. So that was like five years ago. So the first crypto boom. So a lot of the traction we had were people that were kind of leaving market-making jobs or, you know, working in hedge funds, etc. to launch strategies on crypto funds, right? On crypto, start arbitrage, etc. Actually, same. The product market thing was strong. I think we launched about 100 crypto hedge funds. And at some point, we realized that that business didn't make that much sense. Basically, it's very hard to scale because either you go after bigger funds. The thing with big funds is that they have very deep regulatory and legal complexities. So they would have basically, you know, turned us into a, a consulting firm. And the other way is to open the market and go to smaller funds. But the problem with that is like, ultimately, the entities that would capture that demand is going to be like Robinhood with their copy trading or like IDKR, Interactive Broker, they have a very smart, you know, manager account platform that basically looks and feels like a form without the cost or the complexity of one. So yeah, we checked the equation every way possible. You know, there was no way we were going to create a, a billion dollar business with that. So what did we do? We pivoted to the tiny, but, you know, fastly growing business of venture capital that we had at that time. So we kind of got rid of all the hedge funds, which was very hard, right? Because these people trusted us very early on. You know, it's not, it was just not easy. We also gave up like 80% of our revenue. So that, that's, that never feels really good to focus on, you know, purely on venture capital funds and SPVs. But luckily, the product market fit was instant as well. Like, you know, that got us really fast. I think we recovered revenue in just two months. And then we grew like at a rate that's much, much, much faster than we were, you know, doing the hedge funds. And yeah, that's basically our story. That's basically uh, how we got to become uh, SPV creators. And fund creators now as well. There's one thing you didn't hear in that, and that is, I see, I call it, so I, I love people who are hustlers. And Dave and I, we're going to be sleeping in a car soon. So that's <laughs> us hustling. But you guys have always, up until, I don't know if you're still, but up until quite some short time ago, you've actually been living together in, in the same apartment, living and breathing Boban every day. I'd love to hear a bit about the personal side of Ulrich and Remy's life. Yeah, so we, we actually still share an apartment. Uh, it's quite funny, actually. So we wanted to buy an apartment together. We were looking at doing that, like, you know, very recently. 
but our girlfriends went crazy. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> my girlfriend told me, quote, it's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. I'm sure many people told you of that about starting a business as well. So maybe it's, it's your best idea ever. <laughs> yeah, but I think that was quite strong. Even my, my mom, she was like, but what does your girlfriend think about that? <laughs> so I think very sadly, you know, living together might come to an end. Not right now, but at some point in life. It's not going to last forever. Lurig is suspiciously quiet during this session. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had the same reaction from my girlfriend as well. She was like, you know, do you want to uh, get married with Remy or, you know, or, or he stays with me? Like, you know, if you're serious, like, we should live together. <laughs> I guess that you're in the situation as most that your wife slash girlfriends have been waiting for you to finally make some money. And now that you do and you, they find out that you actually love the hustle, <laughs> that's not good. Yeah, no, it's exactly that, actually. On that note, I think, guys, it would be really cool to hear the story about the sale, right? Because I know it's it came to be in a very unique manner and super interesting story because I've heard bits and pieces here and there. But I'd love to hear it from you guys, directly from the source. Yeah, so basically, we had been in touch with Carta very loosely for about a year and a half. So, you know, they were kind of following what we were doing. You know, as you know, at that time, we were raising a Series A. So we had like 20 million committed for our Series A. And basically, Carta, they have a small corporate venture fund and they wanted to write a check in that round. So we were discussing around that. And at some point, you know, we met with Henry, the CEO of Carta, which is someone we admire a lot. You know, that kind of became, rather than writing a small check, that became basically, you know, why wouldn't we, you know, completely join forces? I mean, it was a very, very long thought process. Like, I think Eric debated that, like, literally day and night for, like, you know, weeks or I think even months. Initially, it wasn't thinkable for us to sell. I would say that genuinely the thing that motivated us firstly is that the project with Kata makes sense. You know, we operate in a market that's not enormous, as you guys know as well. You know, it's one of these markets where it makes sense to have a monopoly, right? To have just one actor that kind of is the main gateway for private markets globally. If you think like that, it kind of makes sense to join kind of, uh, you know, forces with Carta, right? Because it just serves the industry so much that there's just one actor that has everything. It just makes everything so much easier and better for everyone. So we thought the project with Carta makes sense. Um, I mean, what they were proposing us, it was very interesting as well, right? Like we're going to kind of, you know, build that part of their business so that super thrilling for Eric and I. You know, it was that time where, I mean, the market was not nearly where it is today, but people were starting to adopt kind of the level of activity and the scale of activity and valuation we were trying to see. So we hadn't seen any softness in our numbers yet, but let's say there was a little bit of uncertainty and we were feeling that, you know, when we were kind of raising our round inventory and ended up being fully committed. Yeah. So basically we got to think, you know, we were like, we created Vauban pretty much out of school been a very long and risky journey and you know some people they trusted us with their time and love and money from very early on like i mean you know all of our early employees they're so smart like they're so incredible they could have worked you know anywhere and pretty much anything in this anywhere would have been more lucrative for them <laughs> and same our investors right there's a lot of deal flow but they you know they chose to trust us very early on some of them pre-seed right it was just Ulrich and i in the basement you know, we kind of freeze the situation for everyone, right? Like investors make money, early employees make money, and that was very important to us. So I would say that, you know, that's how we got to make that decision. Is there anything you want to add, Ulrich? No, I mean, for me, it was a very, you know, interesting process, like these three months of M&A, because, you know, there is not a lot of content online on how to execute an M&A. If you Google, uh, you know, how to raise a round, you have thousands of podcasts, you have an article, etc. But how to do a 
you know, an M&A due diligence between two tech platforms, like there is literally nothing. Like you can find your <laughs> article on the Harvard Business Review about Amazon acquiring Walmart, but uh, not Walmart, uh, Wall Food. But it's not the same at all, right? Like it's like two tech platforms, tech players, the due diligence is completely uh, different. And I was really surprised that there was, you know, nothing online. I remember when we did the uh, like tech due diligence and tech integration chat with the Carter team, you know, I asked our CTO like the, the day uh, before the, the actual eight hours meeting, I asked him like, oh, just Google, you know, M&A tech due diligence question. <laughs> and he arrived in the meeting in front of like 10 lawyers, you know, boardroom <laughs> in, in, in a law firm. And it was pretty scary. Scary, right? <laughs> I told um, Davis at Carta, who is a kind of lead corp dev, like strategy team at Carta, like you should write a, you know, a blog because you did like eight acquisitions at Carta and it would be super interesting you know, to share feedback with the community That's on uh, how to prepare for an M&A, how to prepare for due diligence, how to think about integration, etc. And there is no such content online. That's true. Well, listen, guys, we have some topics that we want to deep dive into, but I can't resist but doing a little pause here for you guys to do something, which is most of the people listening in right now are GPs, emerging GPs, some are aspiring, some are more established, you know, you guys know more or less the, the makeup here. And I have to give you some airtime to talk about what are you guys offering them? Like, what are the solutions? Why should they even care about visiting your website or checking you guys out? So over to you guys to give us kind of a quick pitch of what is Vauban solving? Because we didn't really do that yet. And I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, a fund manager, you want two things in life. You want to raise money and deploy money in startups, right? That's the two things you care about. And you don't want to have to deal with, you know, regulation, taxes, legal work, accounting, onboarding ULPs, KYC, AML, etc. Like all the boring stuff, etc. I mean, we have fun doing that, right? Like it's our, <laughs> it's our business. But as a fund manager, you just want to focus on you know, raising money, deploying capital. And that's what we do, basically. We do, you know, all the infrastructure back office, middle office, so that you can raise your, you know, angel syndicate on a deal-by-deal -deal basis with SPVs, or you can raise your funds, you know, completely streamlined and online. And that's going to be our mission at Carta as well, you know, really develop like Europe infrastructure to enable emerging and established fund manager to do syndicates, SPVs and funds, you know, streamlined, efficient and online. So that's, yeah, really our, our mission now. I think there is a lot of evangelization as well, you know, to be done in the market. Like we need to have more angel investors in Europe. We need to build this ecosystem. And, and that's why I love, you know, you guys and EUVC, because that's what you, you're doing as well, right? And so I think we are completely aligned here. It's just that we are, you know, doing the groundwork, right? Like the, the infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. And if I'm living under a rock as an emerging GP and I've never heard of Vauban, and so I'm like, that sounds interesting, but I'm not sure if I really trust you guys. Can you just share us some big numbers of what's the amount of volume of deals that Vauban from Carta has processed? Can you name any kind of firms or clients? I don't know if you can or not, but just if I don't know you guys, why should I trust that you guys can do this? Yeah, basically, I think Eric said it very well, right? We do your back office. I think that's the most simple way to describe it is that, you know, we really do your back office so that you focus on investing rather than admin. So we have, I think, about 280 active clients at the moment, and we've set up about 560, I think, investment vehicles. $1.2 billion were raised on the platform, so not pretty good numbers. I mean, it's just, it's just starting. That's a nice number. That's a nice number. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Carta is in hundreds of billions or something, so it's still in the ocean, but I think we can get really, really, really far from where we are now. And I mean, we work a little bit with everyone, really. We have like very established venture firm, mostly, you know, European established venture firm because, you know, the American ones use Carta. But we also work with like, you know, small group of syndicates. We even work with founders, like, you know, if you want to keep your capital clean and 
kind of wrap everyone up in a vehicle that's our cheapest vehicle. It's like $2,000 or something, all included. We really work with all the actors of the industry. You know, you always think when there's an integration like this, well, what will this mean? What will happen? What is the ambition? So we've seen Angelus come into Europe before, and then they pulled back and everyone kind of said, well, the Americans don't want Europe because it's a fucking mess. <laughs> but now it seems like, okay, Cartag comes along and they say, okay, we, we buy Vauban and then that's our entry into Europe. But at, at the same time, it's also, you're offering something on the small end of clients that Carta don't really cover as well, at least in Europe. But I'd love to hear, you know, where do you complement each other and what's the strategic thinking behind the vision? I mean, we want to create, you know, the first 100 billion private market company with Carta. Our mission is really to develop the emerging, you know, side of the market because Carta product is really, really good on institutional funds. So, you know, above 100 million, like it's the best, you know, fund admin out there tech fund admins that you can have. And our mission is really to develop you know, syndicate and emerging fund manager. So more uh, top of the funnel. Our two missions are, are really clear. Carta is doing a lot of things as well in liquidity. Like they have, you know, Carta liquidity, like Carta X, where, you know, like an employee can do like uh, secondaries, etc. So I think with Vauban, we will be able to, to create this kind of a private market hub for fund manager, employees, startup employees, startups, etc. So I think it could be yeah, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I would say right now, our priority is really to make sure that, you know, Carta reaches monopole, or at least reaches monopole in Europe and the US. But I think, you know, they have a super strong presence in Asia as well. But, you know, in the markets it operates. Basically, if I had to divide that industry, I think there are four kind of big nodes. The first one are like founders, startups. The second one are like startup employees. The third one are GPs, so venture firm. And lastly, there are LPs, like, you know, investors in, in venture funds, basically. That's really the four nodes that, you know, one needs to control to get massive network effects. And if you look at it, even Angelis, that's kind of, you know, how they probably think, right? They had like a startup employee product, then a founder product, then a more GP product. So right now, that's like Carta. These are the three we're focusing on. So GPs, LPs, and startup employees. And uh, startup, sorry, not GP, startup, and startup employees. So like Carta in the US, they have like Total Comp, etc. And, and they're launching tax products for startup employees as well. We very much focus on GPs at the moment. And obviously, you know, Carta has a strong dominance into the, on the startup node because I think 60% of American startups use them for capital. So yeah, we really want to get to a monopole on these nodes. Then I think the next big node is to capture for us our LPs. Because if you look at it right now, we have loads of LPs on the platform, right? I think we have like six or 7,000. Carta probably has hundreds of thousands. And, but our relationship to them is very transactional. I think, I mean, I guess some of you listening to that podcast might have already went through the experience, but, you know, it's pretty much, you know, you log in, you do your KYC, sign a document, make a payment, done. And you come back maybe, you know, once in a while to check a performance. It's okay, but we don't really offer them so much value as we could, right? So it's very much our intention in the future to start building more for LPs to help them, you know, with taxes, with liquidity, and generally make their lives easier. In Europe, we have many platforms that I would have normally pegged as Vauban's competitor. But now it kind of seems like some of them are having more of a community play or, you know, marketplace play where they say, okay, this is actually our business that we want to capture the place where people find deals. And then that's kind of where we make our money. There's not really the play that's in store for Vauban and, and Carta, right? Stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, I'll stop the recording. <laughs> Where do we go from there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
a slightly different take on this conversation of the future of Oban. You guys, aside from the acquisition, of course, you guys recently announced something that is quite interesting, which was the Lux structure. That was in the making for quite some time. And I think, uh, Remy Ulrich, would be cool to hear you guys kind of say, why is that a, a big thing and an important thing that you guys focus so much time? And then what's coming next? What can we talk about? Yeah, I mean, we've been thinking about going to Luxembourg for the last four years. And we, we never, you know, executed on it because it's just very hard jurisdiction. You know, it's like super high cost. To launch a fund in, in Luxembourg, it's like 200k of, uh, you know, lawyer fee. If you want a fund administrator, it's like, you know, 100, 200k per year. So we needed a lot of, you know, research and development on how to make it work. And I'm glad to announce we did it. So, you know, right now you can launch your fund in Luxembourg and we take care of everything, including the regulation, so that you don't have to, you know, register an investment manager or anything. We do that under our umbrella. So we act as the investment manager and we do the fund admin as well and, and the back office and everything. And we are capable of doing that for 30K per year. So it's really a you know, super attractive offer for anyone that wants to start their first fund. And it's great as well you know, for European LPs because when you are in Europe, you, know, you want to invest in a European structure So and Luxembourg is the best for that. So it was really important for us yeah. that if we wanted to you know, be the number one player in Europe, we have to offer a European jurisdiction. So I'm very, very excited about this. Like we have a lot of clients that sign up. We just launched this offer for this product last week. And we have already, uh, you know, a lot of people like signing up. So it's very exciting. And we have launched as well Luxembourg SPVs. So it's really, you know, if you want to do a fund in Luxembourg, or if you want to do SPVs, we can, um, yeah, we can do it in Luxembourg. That's really exciting. I have a question about future and about Europe that I get asked a lot, which is rolling funds. Will we ever be able to do rolling funds in Europe? What do you guys think? What's your position there? What, what have you learned over the last couple of years? I, I guess you've looked into it a lot. I think it depends what you mean by rolling fund. Like, we're certainly going to be able to do a, a similar concept. Where basically, yeah. it's open-ended, etc. Then it wouldn't exactly replicate all the mechanics of a rolling fund because it basically uses a vehicle that it's... I mean, it doesn't really exist in Europe. And when it does, it comes with fees that just make it not worth it. But it's very much our intention to build an open-ended private fund, basically, an open-ended venture capital fund. I would say it probably won't come with like quarterly subscription. It will be more like a freedom fund, right? Like you just raise when you want, deploy when you want, and then we just equalize everything. So it's one of the things actually that's very good about joining Carta. So they have their own general ledger. It's really a fund admin nerdery. <laughs> Basically, today we rely on an external general ledger and they have their own one, which is like very modern and optimized. So, you know, we would be able to do something that's open-ended without, you know, climbing the cost too massively because there would be no manual work, essentially. So last time, Ulrich, when we had a LinkedIn live chat, I think a month or two ago, I asked you about your feelings around the sale and where to now for Remy and Ulrich. And I wasn't able to get you to say too much about the personal side. And now you've had a bit of time to think. So I'd love to hear Ulrich and Remy. We started this conversation out with, so Remy, you've been taking uh, some vacation, haven't you? Where are you in life? What's happening? I mean, everything is great. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Carter uh, has been very kind to us. And I think the team... Uh, I forgot the word in English when you put a plant on another. Anyway, you know, the fusion, if we can call it, has been, you know, very synergical and has been very, working very well. And it's pretty much it. I mean, I reckon our intention is very much, you know, to stay on board with Carta and build the next $100 billion private market company. And yeah, that's pretty much uh, where we are in life. No, honestly, I, I don't really know uh, what to say because nothing has really changed. And we are still uh, hustling, right? <laughs> we are not just... Uh, resting on a, on a holiday, right? Like <laughs> there is so much that needs to be accomplished. You know, we have a, a 
a business plan we need to execute on. So, you know, it feels like a startup, really. It's just like instead of, you know, doing your, your fundraising rounds, you basically ask for, you know, a budget of next year and you need to you know, negotiate your budget. But for that, you need to demonstrate like you have strong numbers, etc. So it really feels the same, honestly. So we won't see Remy or Ulrich kind of early retiring to open <laughs> kind of lifestyle cross-country in downtown Soho. No, that's yet, that's yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I love that. So now to the final and most important question before the quick fire. I have been seeing something on the hand of both of you, which looks like the new sexy gimmick slash nice apparel or whatever you call that, that you can get from the Vauban Design Studio. Am I right in saying that you're wearing a ring with the Vauban logo on? Oh yeah, the signet. Yeah, <laughs> we produce just 12 of them. Um, it's been like in a lot of the rings now. I think there are 12 rings. <laughs> Who has the the ring to rule them all? Then, if it's like literally, that went to Henry from Tartan. <laughs> Henry, Henry from Tartan. <laughs> uh, love that. Love that. And to the listeners that don't know, the reason why I hype up your sexy apparel line is because you have vests that are downright proof, and I think that that's an amazing offering that everyone should get, especially <laughs> these days. So, if you had a ring now to go with it, that would be. <laughs> that, would, that would, guys. You know this. Our listeners know this. Uh, we always end our episodes with a quick fire round, quick answer questions, thirty to sixty seconds each typically we interview gps but since you guys are servicing gps in such manner i think we will ask you exactly the same questions i think that will only be cool are you ready yeah yeah i'm up for it first questions and uh Ulrich, let's start with you first question is what areas technologies or sectors excite you the most that other people around you maybe don't really feel that excited about so i'm really excited about um full stack startups or tech-enabled startup, where essentially you have a software component, but you have a service component as well. Because that's what we've been doing, you know, at Vauban. Like, Vauban is not 100% software. You know, we are still like an operational team. And our goal is to enable this operational team through software to be more efficient. And I think it's often underlooked, you know, by VCs, because VCs, you know, they want like 99% profit margin, uh, pure, uh, you know, B2B SaaS software uh, startup. And they don't really want, you know, to invest in full stack startups. So we've been, you know, over the last four years preaching in the desert, you know, trying to convince VCs that it makes sense. And, you know, we have example how successful it could be to really own a vertical right? Like to be really full stack, like Apple, for example, you know, they could have done software only, but, you know, they went hardcore on developing a great hardware as well. Or Uber, they could have, you know, developed like a software for uh, taxi drivers, but they actually, you know, hired taxi drivers to do it. So we have, same for WeWork. So we have many, many examples on, um, you know, on big success with full stack startups. So, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to have like a service component if it's useful for the industry you, you operate in. Remy, I know this is a hard one, but same question to you. What excites you the most that people around you don't yeah. really feel that excited about? Yeah, obviously, I'm very excited about full-stack startups as well. I think it's basically the way to go to convert industries that have mostly, you know, resisted technology until now. And then I would say something that interests me, but I'm not sure that it's a good investment for many reasons. <laughs> But it's anything about around, you know, kind of government tech. Like, I mean, it's a little bit sad, but, you know, with everything we're seeing, it looks like democracy is not being as successful as it used to at the moment in the West and elsewhere. And I'm asking myself a lot of questions about, you know, how technology could make it more fair, transparent, you know, make it easier for kind of leaders to make long-term decisions rather than very short-term ones. Earlier today, we had a chat with Dan from Superseed, and he actually brought up exactly the same topic. <laughs> so how can tech help us have a better functioning democracy and government? So you're not alone, Remy. So maybe it is not. It, it might. There might be a twist there of, of a yeah. good investment. I respect Dan a lot. That's why I bring him up, of course. Yeah. The, the problem is that I think it's so plagued with 
very archaic thinking and processes that I think it's, it's just really hard basically to sell to, you know, governments and government-related entities. I mean, you could go full stack, but that basically, you know, means doing a revolution, right? So. <laughs> uh, crypto people might, might agree with that one. <laughs> to be honest, guys, like, uh, I hesitate a lot about, you know, starting like angel investing because as an entrepreneur, you know, you are forced to be extremely optimistic, you know, about the future. So when a founder, you know, talk to me and pitch me their startups, I'm like, yeah, definitely I'm going to invest, right? So I want to invest in every single founder, which is not a, you know, a good strategy, right? So, uh, I mean, if there are founders that, uh, you know, are listening, don't hesitate to send us your deals. <laughs> We're kind of destroying the whole concept of the quickfire right now, but that's actually interesting because <laughs> that's the basis of the 500 global kind of concept of your, the ideal portfolio size is 500. Right? <laughs> uh, and that's why I have to put this message, guys. That's why the European VC does what it does. Right? <laughs> it's exactly for those reasons. But I agree with you, Ulrich. When I see founders, it always pains me to not be able to invest in every single one of them, especially those that I think are like doing an amazing job because we have amazing entrepreneurs in Europe. Moving on. Second question of the quickfire. And this one, Remy, let's start with you. What are your top tips for emerging VCs who are fundraising across Europe? Basically, I think a lot of people that launch their venture firm, they kind of shoot too big too early. You know, they kind of like, okay, I'm becoming a VC. I'm going to raise $100 million. And it's easy to think that it's easy because on the media, you only see the good news, right? But, you know, you're just looking yeah. at the top 1% of kind of venture capitalists, you know, getting started. Yeah, it's a lot harder than that to get there. So basically my tip was like, you know, if you can, I think it's good to start deal by deal, right? You build a track record, you build a relationship with LPs, you start building your brand, your personal brand, which is extremely important in venture capital because basically what you're selling is so commoditized that it's you, right? Like you, you really have to be strong and people really have to trust your instincts. And then when you launch a fund, I think it doesn't hurt to start to launch a small fund, even 5 million, you know, I think. You're going to have to do very early stage, which is very, very hard. But, you know, if you do it well, it's going to be very lucrative for everyone. And from there, you can build on bigger funds. Like, yeah, you always break my heart. But I, I see too many people even saying, you know, I'm going to raise 50 million and I don't launch until I have 50 million. And they spend years, you know, and just not getting there. So it's okay, you know, start small, but close something, do deals, get in the flow. And then you're going to scale, like basically like a business. Ulrich, anything you'd add as top tips for emerging VCs in Europe? Yeah, we are not great at this quick fire, so I would try to be uh, <laughs> extremely quick. I'd say uh, to be extremely uh, precise in your investment thesis, you know, pick your niche and, and be passionate about it. Because you know, 50% of the VC I'm meeting, I'm meeting with are, you know, they tell me, oh, we invest in tech, seeds to uh, series uh, D. And it's fine when you are a big firm, you know, it's fine when you are an established brand, but when you are launching your first fund, like you need to be extremely uh, differentiated and look for investors or angel investors, you know, that share your values and, and your conviction about the specific niche. Yeah, definitely agree. Third and final question, which is what's the most counterintuitive thing since you've started servicing the venture industry and the service provider? Ulrich, let's start with you. I read uh, the power law, right? And, and I didn't realize at what level, you know, the power law was so steep and, and all the implication. As a VC, you're going to be wrong 90% of the time. But you still need to invest with a lot of conviction. So it's kind of you know, counterintuitive. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you will see VCs on uh, Twitter, on LinkedIn, you know, writing long articles about the future of the world, etc. And you are like, you know, oh my God, like this guy is a genius investor, but actually he's wrong 90% <laughs> of the time. But when he's right, 
like, oh my God, right? Like it's, uh, you know, Revolut, uh, all the big startups, Stripe, etc. So it's kind of a yeah, counterintuitive thing. For sure. Remy, what about from your side? What's the most counterintuitive learning? I would say it's more the things we've seen, uh, you know, because obviously, on, you know, we do deals every day, right? So we see a lot of volume on uh, and a lot of exits as well, etc. on the platform. One thing I've noticed is that, I, I you know, I haven't run numbers on that. Don't overtake it. But basically... You know, star repeat entrepreneurs that they don't necessarily always make the best investments. I mean, I have in mind a lot of occurrences like that we've seen on the platform where there were companies started by, you know, people that already, you know, built a unicorn or, you know, exited the company, etc. They create a new company and they tend to have the attention because first, you know, they're going to be able to raise from like, you know, very famous, you know, VC firms. And, you know, as you know, VC really like to say, I co-invested with that very famous firm. And plus, you know, mathematically, they've learned a lot of things in the first adventure. So they're slightly more likely to succeed. But the thing is, you know, you pay a very, very steep price for that. Like you can pay four or five times more than a first-time entrepreneur. So, you know, you need to take that into account. Like, And the second thing is that, you know, if there's no good product market fit, there's no good product market fit, right? The guy might be a superstar, but the thesis end up not being right. Like, you know, there's a lot of luck in that game as well. I think we don't talk about it enough. So yeah, I would say that that's the kind of scene that we've seen. Like a lot of down rounds are like, you know, 15% up rounds, et cetera, happen with these like superstar entrepreneurs that started with like extremely steep price for the seed round. It's interesting to hear from someone who has that much volume go through your hand, right? Uh, so cool to hear from someone right next to, uh, to the deal yeah. volume. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the European VC. It was a special one. I think actually it's the first time we talked to a founding team now that I, I think of it. I guess you guys, you're doing quite some activity as angels as well. So I think it, it makes all the sense from that perspective as well. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day. Cheers, guys. Thank you for having us. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.